Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) In this episode of The Pleasure Podcast, we speak with a talented multi-hyphenate Jason Domino, porn performer, sex worker, activist and head of the sexual health think tank, the Domino Foundation. Jason tells us how he got into sex work and porn, and how he separates sex with a client from sex with a partner. We discuss negotiating open relationships, and how a health scare following a porn shoot opened his eyes to the need for sex education, particularly around HIV prevention. This led to the creation of Porn for Prep, a groundbreaking film combining sex and HIV education. Jason continues to advocate towards the full decriminalisation of sex work as the method that would most reduce harm and stigma to sex workers. Jason's work has taken him all the way to the United Nations, speaking on sexual health and human rights. I grew up in a pretty standard North London family and went to quite a lot of church. Uh, And then while that was going on, I still realised that I, I was gay. And I still am today, but um, it took quite a lot of time for me to personally accept all of that. And then my church kind of encouraged me to sort of pray that away as much as I could. And when that wasn't working, I contacted them and said that wasn't working. And they put me in touch with a, a camp to try and do conversion therapy, to try and change my sexuality. And... At the same time, I was studying psychology at school and I sort of mixed some of the things that I was learning in my AS level about associating displeasure and pain with behaviours that you want to change. I remember you talking about how you would look at a picture of a naked man, shall we say, and you would then drink mouthfuls of vinegar. It was things that would make me shudder and, yeah. (laughs) So trying to trigger a sort of negative response and associating that with the sex that you're watching. Absolutely. I almost consider it a form of self-harm. It really was a very dark place with a lot of self-loathing. And it's in a space where people would feel like um, being told that this is the purest, lightest sort of thing they can do. And it's, it's all of this sort of imagery. And it's it's very, very confusing, particularly on a young person's mind. There was even sermons and sort of camps where around sort of 14 to 17-year-olds would sort of go away. And these camps would be sort of Christian retreats and some of the sort of services that they would deliver would be focused on trying to change who you were and your sexuality if you were gay. I mean, they would be focused on saying things like kind of strange analogies. I remember one of them was saying, it's like Batman and Robin, and men are Batman, and you feel like it's such a challenging role model to look up to Batman that instead you look to have like Robin as your 
role model, which is such a strange that is thing. Very confusing. Yeah. But that's that's what the sort of things that they would say. It's like, also quite homoerotic, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Everything is just. <laughs> but a boy was, wonder. I mean, his name says it all. There we <laughs> go. Boy, but you also mean. And the hot pants he was wearing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The danger was ending up being gay, and then the, the impact of in, in the afterlife, as opposed to the trauma that someone could then live with through their life from having put themselves through this sort of experience. And it's not illegal in the country yet. Oh, wow. So this is still happening? This is still going on? It's still happening in the UK. There's a lot more publicity around it in, in the US where some of these camps are much larger and a little more military uh, in, in their sort of practices. Um, but it does happen in the UK still. So how did you go from that self-enforced in some respects, aversion therapy, mm. to going, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I prayed and listened to sort of my internal voice, which I now consider to just be my conscience, but back then I, I considered as, as the voice represented as God. Um, and I said, I'd like a sabbatical for my faith. And the, the sort of reply was very like accepting of that. And that challenged my entire understanding of everything and it gave me enough space to be able to explore who I was sexually. And it, it's something as simple as that. And I explored having a boyfriend. It really was a really liberating feeling. And I got a lot of the, the things that the church had already initially been saying about community and companionship and these sort of joint hardships and things. I, got, I found them within the gay community, within the LGBTQIA community. It gives you the family that sometimes you don't necessarily have yourself. Mm. I mean, my, my family, again, very connected to the church. They did stay around, but it took them a long time. They actually went to some of these psychologists to help parents with gay children sort of accept the changes. And that was a journey that was very, very helpful for them. I got into a relationship with someone who had quite extreme depression. And I was coming out of a relationship myself. And this new relationship helped me move on. And so I really wanted to help this person with, with quite a lot of depression to sort of stabilize because they kept falling through the sort of cracks in society. They were unable to consistently turn up to appointments in order to get governmental support. And yet they kept losing jobs because they were unable to leave the house. But it was in the credit crisis. And while I was working a part-time job, I wasn't earning enough money to take care of two people. So at, at this point, I started doing sex work to supplement my income. Mm -hmm. But the other factor which came into this was the fact that my partner used cruising as an escapism method. Cruising is meeting strangers for sex. In the gay world, cruising has sort of been part of our heritage because when gay sex was illegal, it was kind of one of the only ways where people could explore their sexuality. And it would tend to be in places like woods or public toilets Cruising has now sort of evolved in the gay community into using saunas, venues with designated uh, sex spaces, so dark rooms in the back or things like that. So that was the space where he would go to for escapism. So when you started to get into sex work, how easy was it to, to start off doing it? Or was it hard? And did it feel like a big leap into it? Or did it feel quite a natural thing today? It was an interesting one because I, I didn't take to cruising but I felt if I was going to be doing this, then I should at least be making money from it. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's brilliant. Um, it was, uh, uh, so that, that's how I got into it. Um, and 
from that viewpoint, it really did make sense for me. I enjoyed it more than when I was trying to accompany my partner going cruising. There was a lot of emotions to begin with, but actually I I got on with it because I, I needed the money. And actually the money enabled me to live a life where I could take care of my partner and set up enough systems for him so that he could be self-sufficient. It's funny that you said about, yeah, that that cruising connection, because, and that you laughed about it, Anand, because um, it suddenly rang a bell in my mind that when... There was quite a few women when I was in my early 20s, quite a lot of us having quite unsatisfactory sex, um, but with quite a lot of partners. And there was a big conversation that happened between us saying, why not do this for money? Why be doing this where it's not actually... If we're having crap sex, won't we get paid for crap sex? Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that sex in your life was bad or or even that the paid sex was bad necessarily. But that was the connection that we we made in our minds. And I wonder whether that's a very common thing. Well, it's quite a logical connection because our society puts sex on such a plinth. It's everything is selling towards sex and pointing towards sex. So when you actually come to sex, you're sort of... it's not quite satisfactory enough, then you would feel like, okay, well, there's this this extra, which I could capitalize off because it's not lived up to the expectations it's given. Yes, me. yeah, it's not doing, I'm losing out somehow. Mm. They're getting something and I'm not. So we need to redress the balance here. <laughs> Absolutely. I still do sex work and my my clients will tend to be a mixture of something like they have their own conflict with sexuality and, and faith and they'll need someone like myself who's able to talk into that in quite a calm space and let them be able to speak. A lot, a lot of the time my, my clients are disabled and they've been treated as undesirable just because of their disability and they need someone to a counterpoint where they, they feel like that is not an issue at all. And sometimes it's one of the ones that's been happening more frequently has been people that are substance dependent for their sex uh, I give them sober confidence sessions so that's sort of I would say it's more about sort of the authenticity between like the chemistry between people and letting people explore that put a name to it and say the nerves that you feel here the sort of sexual tension is something that heightens the reality and makes it more worth as opposed to needing to numb it and get through it and and so it's it's an interesting sort of space, but each different session has different requirements of me and the emotional labour that I put into it. So in some ways, am I right in saying that your psychology training has been hugely helpful? <laughs> it feels like there's a real line between therapy and well, it's sort of like a physical, sexual therapy that's happening in the room. I'd say that's, that's very true for a lot of sex workers. I mean, e- even if we're going down to some of the grittiest uh, existence for, for some sex workers, there's normally quite a large element of the therapy that you're offering to your clients um, and it can be it, like physical contact it can be talking about things it can be all sorts of different levels so you can have whole sessions where actually touch might not be the main purpose of the, however long you're spending with your client absolutely i mean and it, again it isn't always one picture certain clients need or feel they need different experiences different things which which just happen to be either something that they can't talk to their wife about or all these other scenarios. You obviously were then working in sex work to make ends meet. Was it that that led towards working in porn? 
A lot of people go to porn for different reasons. It's normally either because they're wanting to explore more of themselves and looking for the fun of it, which kind of was an element of myself. I wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone, particularly as I still had remnants of my upbringing sort of contrasting me a bit. It's normally what we normally say is uh, fun, money or fame. So then there's money, which obviously is what it is. And most of the time, that's actually not the end of the story. The end of the story is they have a dependency, like taking care of their parents or student debts or something like that. And then there's fame, which some people really get into this, the glamour of what being in porn can be or what that platform will enable you to share with the world, which is sort of where I am positioned now. But for me, it was... In the early days, again, it was money. I wanted to make sure that the porn promoted my profile so that I could have more clients. That sort of enabled me to have good photos that I could use for my marketing. And that would mean there was some financial stability there as well. It's quite savvy. Sex workers are some of the, the strongest survivalists there are. I mean, there's a real resilience and practicality because a lot of the other sort of offers come with terms. Whereas with a sex worker, it's it's in your hands and you're being practical for your survival. Your dick is basically a barometer of how you're doing anxiety-wise. A lot of performers will have difficulty maintaining an erection for an entire shoot. Um, obviously, the actual film will be edited so that the, sort of the best bits run the entire time. But some of the strategies that people use, a lot of the time there'll be like Viagra use on scene, which can help minimize the ups and down effects. But also tricks, mental tricks like mindfulness about staying in the moment can really help reduce these sort of uh, ups and downs with erections. Because that's one of the main things that drags on a scene and makes it harder work. I mean, for both parties, if, if you're having to wait for the male performer or the top to be hard and to be able to continue filming, then it, these strategies are really, really helpful. Sometimes in, you have to reintroduce some chemistry again. So it might be ignoring all of the camera crew that are there and saying, I've known about you for a while and I've actually really fancied you for quite a while. Huh? Introducing something cheeky like that again, like just mentioning it to them or something, can can sometimes just reignite this again and make sure it's more than just the work. Has it ever felt like sex with your partner and then versus sex with your client? But does it ever influence both sides of your life? You've mentioned that you feel like you have to keep a, a real dividing line between them. But obviously, this is your body. It's your emotions, I suppose, in, in, in some respect. Um, how, how do you keep them so separate? So the compartmentalization of my work and my private life kind of happens naturally because the clients want sometimes quite distinct things. Uh, it can be that they're into an unusual fetish, that they're worried that certain people won't understand. And again, it doesn't always tend to be what I'm personally into. So that sort of separation happens anyway. But as I've done more and more activism and mixed that with my sex work and sex worker rights, I've really stepped more into my persona and who I was growing up has become more of a, a personal space for just my family. Um, so my partner actually knows me quite thoroughly as my, my sex work persona because that's kind of who I've chosen, who I've become. It's a name that I've chosen. There's something quite innate to who I am with how I built that. With the sex, which relates to clients and my partner. So my partner currently, is it's a different partner to the one I, I spoke about in the past. Uh, but my, with my current partner, we're in an open relationship, which is a relationship where either party can have sex with other people and it doesn't sort of impact or threaten the relationship. 
And that's the type of relationship which can really thrive when someone's a sex worker, just because some of the conversations about work with clients isn't already a threat. It's an interesting scenario because effectively it turns the structure of how relationships should look classically on its head. Because sometimes relationships are painted in a way where the ultimate cherry on the icing is the sex. Whereas we're sort of taught that actually things like the companionship and the support for each other and the other sort of emotions are actually higher value somehow. It's this strange combination of doing that and yet pointing towards the sex. Whereas in an open relationship, the sex is a lot more sport-like. It's a lot more, you can go and have fun with someone else. Tell me about it if you want afterwards. I mean, that sounds kind of hot. Or don't, you know, these things are, it's about terms that you set with your partner and honoring that. The trust is what is important because when someone cheats on you, it's not just the fact that someone has had sex with someone else and then maybe they'll run off with them. It's actually the fact that there's been a betrayal of trust. And if your terms are that we can do this, then that element isn't the threat. And I would much rather be in a situation where I know that my partner is exploring all sorts of things with other people and yet my partner chooses me. I want them to know that I'm the best choice that they wanted. And if, if I'm not, they should find that other person and similar, likewise, in another direction. I feel so enlightened, actually, in the sense of <laughs> it's not all that pressure on sex, especially when it comes to long-term relationships, about keeping that alive. And, all, and, and, and as that is the only person you're having sex with, actually... It's kind of you live or die by that by that relationship. Friends that I have that are in an open relationship have been very... The ones that are most successful have been really clear what the boundaries are, whether that be you can't see the same person again or you, you, you only see a very small number of people and you can see them repeatedly. Yeah, and, and some people it's please don't stay the night with them afterwards, don't sleep with them afterwards because actually that closeness is a lot of the time more of... Again, if people are worried that their partner is going to fall in love with someone else, then I would say that that's already a, a difficult space because I would want them to be exposed to that risk and still choose me. Uh, however, uh, if you are trying to sort of take these things off the table, then it's more of those emotional spaces that are where people fall in love as opposed to sometimes sex, which, depending on what type of sex you're wanting, doesn't have to be that romantic. Mm. Yes, i've seen some videos (laughs) Um, do you ever feel that people treat you differently when you tell them that you're a sex worker or make certain presumptions about you absolutely and we call it being face out when you are a sex worker or porn actor well porn actors are sex workers of some degree because we get the type of stigma um we may not be sort of murdered in the same frequency but we'll always be sort of pigeonholed uh, for our work in some ways. Um, but when you're face out, it means you're someone that's open about all of this and you're saying what your job is. And a lot of that is a form of protest in itself. And as soon as you do that, you will have people that contact you and send you all sorts of horrible things. And you have to have conversations as if you are coming out as someone who's gay mm. over and over again. Mm. And it's worth it, but it's tiring because... Again, the emotional labor that you're putting in to correcting the world in little spaces and saying, actually, this is my job and it's okay, that's that's quite draining. But at the other levels, 
sometimes that will really impact you in other ways. So things like PayPal might close your accounts because you've got details of being a sex worker and their morality rules say that you can't have anyone that's a sex worker, even though it is legal, as in it's lawful in the UK, they will close your account because they don't want it passing through their company. There's a lot of financial services that discriminate against you. There's a lot of jobs that they may fire you if they find out in future that you've been a sex worker or, or porn actor. And they as may if it's some sort of as if maybe you have a, a criminal record. And sometimes you can get your, your for sex workers listening, like you can contact your your unions and your sex worker groups. There's some fantastic ones. I would recommend Swarm and National Ugly Mugs is a really great charity that can be really supportive. Uh, they're called National Ugly Mugs because a dangerous client is referred to as an ugly mug, a bit like a dan- like a dodgy geezer. So, and are there sort of um, platforms, sort of social media type things, where people can sort of inform each other of, oh, there's a certain client that's that I need to warn you all about, or mm. that kind of thing. So, so that's actually what National Ugly Mugs started out as. It started in Australia, but it's. Uh, effectively like a a blacklist of dangerous clients shared amongst sex workers so that they have a warning system and also so that sex workers can contact this charity if they don't want to be in direct contact with police. Uh, Maybe you are uh, reporting sexual violence or something. You might still have police try and act inappropriately to you in other ways. So uh, sometimes a sex worker on the street will be in trouble for loitering or sex workers working together will be... This happened in Northern Ireland very recently. Uh, two sex workers living together were charged as pimping each other out because there's two people, right. um, which is such a strange combination of using the laws to get what the individual feels is right or wrong rather than actually understanding what the principles are behind it. Yeah, yeah. And I can also imagine we were talking to Sarah Pascoe in our last interview and in, um, in her book she t- talks a little bit about how somehow there's a sense of buying consent so that um, the idea of rape within sex work is um, very often by the police seen as a muddy issue as if somehow it's impossible to rape a sex worker or is it some sort of theft absolutely i'm and i'm glad you're using those terms because we often try and make rape sound more palatable i know it can be a triggering topic for some people but if we're unable to talk about it quite directly then it, even tre- even responding to it can be a lot harder uh, as soon as people start to say oh well sex workers are under the influence that they will get money, so that's not full informed consent, then are they being raped? As soon as you start going down that dialogue, then there is no barrier saying when someone is physically assaulted. When someone is consensually working versus them being attacked, there's no barrier there. And that means that people can't turn to you when those scenarios happen. So my first porn scene was with someone living with HIV and I wasn't aware at the time of filming but uh, I found out afterwards uh, there had been a mess up with some of the paperwork which is incredibly unusual. So I I had this porn scene and my friend that I did the porn scene with, uh, now my friend, um, turned to me and afterwards we were were going to get get some food and he explained that he needed to... uh, have a meal because he had to take his pills and because i have epilepsy i was wanting to like show some level of solidarity and be like oh what's that for i've got this uh and then he said he was living with hiv 
and my whole world span because I thought I've just done a scene with you and does that mean I'm going to catch HIV and does that mean I will die and all of these things and went into And this scene was without a condom? So it was actually a condom but there was a facial at the end. Fine. And this really highlights how much more conversation needs to happen with sex education. I thought potentially because some had gone in my mouth that maybe I'd catch HIV. And I had gotten to the point where I was doing porn and I still didn't know that. And to clarify, to ingest someone's semen, that sounds so... To swallow someone could come. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> um, <laughs> that, that would not put you at risk or it would. There's a small space for theory there. But there hasn't been a a record of anyone contracting HIV via uh, oral sex. However, technically, if you have got any broken gums or any... um, So, for example, particularly if you've brushed your teeth before sex, lots of people do tend to brush their teeth before they have sex. There is a potential circumstance by which um, HIV can be transmitted uh, through the gum line if you've brushed your teeth and someone's just come in your mouth. Try not my to main takeaway from that, I'm sorry, but it's that I never brush my teeth before sex and it makes me feel now, I feel I, like I, a right dirty woman. I, I, I do tend to tell people more to use mouthwash. <laughs> mouthwash or chewing gum. Really? <laughs> but it's, you know, that's, again, these are the kind of the conversations that we need to actually be having yeah. in sex education. Yeah. Um, and then I went to hospital and I got PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. What you do is you can go to a survey and say, I've been in this situation. And if you start it within uh, 72 hours, but the earlier, the better. Then actually, with this month-long course of medication, you have a chance of stopping the infection developing. And I seem to remember that in one of your interviews, you'd said that you had to sort of talk it up a bit to ensure that you definitely would receive it. Absolutely. I wouldn't have got PEP if I had explained thoroughly that it was via oral because the chances for that is, is, is so slim. In this story, your COBA former had undetectable levels of HIV and I hadn't heard of this before. Mm. And it sounds like maybe you hadn't either at the time. Is that correct? Absolutely. When someone is at an undetectable viral load or viral level, then there's no way of them being able to pass on HIV. I then learned about PrEP. PrEP is a pill that you can take as a preventative way of stopping you from catching HIV. Most people take it as a daily pill. And if you've got enough of it in your system before having sex, when you encounter the virus and your body is prepared to be able to fight it off. This gives me a real um, shiver. Yeah. Just because I started doing my HIV job in the year 2000, 2001, um, which was just after they'd introduced triple therapy on a broadline basis. And so the number of patients you had on the ward became one or two, you know, for being absolutely packed and it being horrifying, to be honest. But just, you know, horrifying, I don't mean that in my sense, but just so saddening and so um, uh, devastating as in terms of the effects of, one, the side effects of the medication they may have been given, but two, the side effects of, of, of actually the HIV progressing into AIDS um, was, was just, just terrifying. Um, however, the wards emptied, um, which was wonderful in the sense that people were receiving triple therapy but now to know that triple therapy or highly active antiretroviral therapy or whatever you want to call it i've never heard of triple therapy before so generally they don't just use one drug to uh, reduce the levels of hiv in your blood they use multiple drugs which work in multiple ways Um, and the newer drugs are much safer in lots of ways in terms of side effect profile in terms of i mean when i was first taking blood from hiv patients um, a third of the blood vial would then turn to fat floating on the surface because it made your and cholesterol levels so high oh. so you would just sit there and wow. you would just be floating and you'd be going 
you know, what does that mean in terms of their life expectancy because of such a high that, cholesterol? Because of the medication. That because of the medication, the way it was being processed in the body made the cholesterol level go really high. And I appreciate, sorry, this is not necessarily interesting being a super technical thing, but for me, it's magnificent. It's extraordinary. It makes me slightly overwhelmed because... Um, to have medication that was there to treat HIV, yeah. which was still which is still such a stigma attached um, illness, to now be used to prevent HIV, is incredible. It's game changing. It is changing the sex people have. It is changing the potential life life outcomes people might have had if they you know contracted HIV. Yeah. I think it's. Um, yeah, it's not too, what's too small a word to say, incredibly, wonderfully, delightfully <laughs> marvellous. It's all of those things. Yeah. So I'm going to stop being overly emotional now. No. <laughs> no it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, for some reason, the rest of the world hasn't quite cottoned on to how exciting this is. Because even though we haven't got a cure for HIV, we have a situation now where people who are living with HIV and they're diagnosed and then treated when it's effectively repressing their viral levels, they can't pass it on. And then we have people that potentially could contract HIV, able to protect themselves using tools like PrEP. And that's a sort of perfect combination where you have people working together and you're able to bridge also the social boundaries where it seems like, oh, there's a them and an us, which is such a flawed perspective anyway, because most people catch HIV from someone who didn't realize that they had it. But anyway, these sort of combinations working together really does build bridges between communities and really say, well, we've been we've been siblings all along. But we're talking vast populations could potentially never develop HIV. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa, such, such a high HIV rate. And then you have the issue of how much the drugs cost. That, that frustrates me hugely, that these drugs are so expensive, you can't give them to large populations. Well, you, you could, but it would require either the drug cost to come down or for countries to just go, actually, we are going to pay for all of the high-risk groups. After meeting my, my stage partner who was living with HIV and then me reacting and going on PEP and then coming off PEP and then going on to PrEP, which at that point was very difficult to get in the UK, but I was able to purchase it and now it's available on the NHS on the impact trial and we're looking at trying to increase that to a full rollout so that people who need PrEP are actually accessing it and that it's not sort of means separated. When I've been on PrEP for a, a number of years I've been able to teach people about it and I've been able to eventually make a film which included about 20 different porn actors and doctors because if we talk about these subjects too clinically then it doesn't even go to the right parts of the audience's brain. So we talk about context-dependent memory, which is if you teach someone some information and it's in the same scenario, then they're more likely to have retention of the information. So if you're teaching sex and maybe it's awkward or uncomfortable, say a, a classroom full of students, are you expecting that same information to appear in the person's brain when they're actually excited and horny and getting ready for sex so we made a film which was a porn film that talked about its situations and had porn actors talking about situations like disclosure um, consent uh, it even talked about the performers who opened up about living with HIV even talk them talking about telling their family about that and how they sort of navigated that situation it really highlighted to me that whatever barriers be them religious institutions or whatever it is that are getting in the way of sex education, having the conversations that they need to have. Kids and adults are learning via adult film currently. And it needs to be 
the sex education that is catching up and being pragmatic about all of that, saying actually we need to do a better job. And there, there are the case history of, of patients coming to, to see doctors and going, oh, my penis looks funny. And they're going, okay, fine, let's examine you. And they're like, I, I don't see a problem. They're like, well, what's this? And you're like, well, that's the foreskin. And because they haven't seen it represented in porn, they think it's abnormal. Mm. It's called Porn for Prep. Absolutely. Um, and you, people can just Google it, can they? If they go to pornforprep.com, there's the database of where they can find what type of versions they want. So if they're looking for the audio description version. Uh, so maybe they're not able to, to watch it, but they're able to listen to it. Then we've got recordings uh, that as well. I think it's great. I, and I really, really hope that, you know, more will be made of this. There is a non-explicit version. There, there are various versions and various lengths, depending on what environment you're in and who your, who your audience is. Um, so that's what's so good about it. And therefore, you can access different versions with your comfort level. Um, and the subjects covered are ones which are rarely addressed. Yeah. and which should be more addressed in uh, certainly about sex to, to reduce that stigma, to reduce the shame, mm-hmm. to reduce the um, embarrassment um, that we all have. There are different times of life, you need different education. But, and this is adult sex education, which we're talking about in this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's such an important, important thing. I'm very, very proud of it. And the reason mainly is because everyone involved uh, donated all of their time. For example, the porn actors, it was very important that they did it that way because... We will always be seen as in it for the money. And that's one of the elements that we need to sort of also address and see actually, okay, well, it's a job. And actually, they're very qualified to be talking about sex. People don't just look at sex as clinical with us. They know that we're living what we're talking about. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I started the porn to promote my, my sex work, and that's quite a common story. That a lot of the time, porn now is a business where there isn't that much money in it because there's so much availability for free porn. So a lot of porn performers are offering other services, be it fan subscriptions or individual client meets. I hadn't realised how... OK, I'm going to sound super naive now. I hadn't realised how much... Free porn was available. I just had no. I, I just I couldn't believe it that as soon as you know I Google your name or other people, immediately it pops up with no sort of paywall. I I don't know why I thought that it would be that one would have to pay for it more easily. I mean, I've only just become acquainted properly with Pornhub. 
I and think I it's always important wow. <laughs> to become acquainted <laughs> properly with Pornhub. Dipped my toe in. <laughs> so one, one year, I think it was um, Pornhub uploaded 54 years worth of porn. And you're going, there is now so much porn available that you could never watch all of it. So there's many levels to all of this. This is a really interesting subject because Pornhub is now focused on being a traffic website. So if you wanted to set up your own little porn company, Pornhub would give you tools in order for, for you to be able to run that company. And you can make money off the ad revenue and this side of things. But them and them themselves as a company, they're kind of distancing themselves from the end product and even performer welfare and these side of things. So the whole structure is slightly a pyramid scheme based on piracy. Uh, but that's kind of what's undermined the prices within the porn industry, the fact that there is such a availability of free porn. There's a regulation that's being introduced in the UK that hasn't been introduced just yet, but it's it's very close. It's called age verification, but its technical name is the Digital Economy Act. And the idea with that is certain explicit sites will have to go through a check, which uses something like your credit card or you go to a, a corner post office and you get a sort of scratch card once they've checked your ID in order to access the site, which sounds like one of these fantastic ideas. But reality is it's encouraging a society to not talk about sex further and you have children that are already quite tech savvy, rather than in a space where you can monitor what's going on, ending up using things like VPNs, which sort of mask which country you're looking at your porn from, and torrents, which is another way of downloading material, and finally uh, accessing porn via the dark web, where there's a lot more extreme material out there. So it's really this whole approach of transparency versus trying to punish and push things underground you kind of have to address and be practical with what's going on and then have an approach of, okay, let's equip you with this and make sure you're doing things safely and we'll talk about it, as opposed to ban and punish. It's how people treat sex workers that makes the job dangerous. It kind of isn't the work itself. It's actually the result of the stigma. If people realise that sex workers could contact the police, they might be less violent to sex workers. The people realize that actually it's a job and the people inside that job have friends that they've called before they've had the session who will be looking for where they are. Then they also might be less likely to attack the person. The police might be held more accountable when it comes to knowing that there's unions and rights groups out there. Yeah. So we need to be listening to sex workers, actually, don't we? At the moment, what happens is people say this is a, a damaged people group, victims, we can't listen to them because in the same way that sometimes people say this about people who are dependent on substances, people say, oh, we can't listen to them because they're, they're dealing with it. They're saying something that which we don't want. Actually, people in the situation are experts in the subject. In the UK, we have the partially decriminalised model, and that means that sex work itself is legal. However, sort of the surrounding topics aren't. So if a sex worker is to work with others then it you know it can be seen as brothel keeping or keeping an un, uh, un some, the words are like unsavory house i can't remember it's <laughs> off my head dickensian i know it's very it's all very strange and there's a lot of different scenarios where okay so running a brothel again illegal working on the street illegal putting cards in telephone boxes illegal there's a number of these different mechanisms which some a sex worker can be arrested for um even though it's for a lot of people, it's part of how they're they're working. So people working, sex workers working together, 
that's because they can call out and then their, their flatmates can give them help or a, set, or a client is less likely to attack someone, even if they see someone else lives in the house. So sometimes sex workers will do things like put boots, which are much larger than their foot size, yeah. in the front hall. So people feel like there's people living there. Wow. I mean, it's these sort of mechanisms which sex workers are using. It's because the law is punishing safety measures. And then the next sort of approach is asymmetrical punishment. So that's sometimes known as the, the Nordic model or the end-demand model. And that is, it's illegal for a client to purchase sexual services, but it is lawful for the sex worker to offer them. So imagine that's you going to a, a coffee shop and saying, I want that coffee, and you're breaking the law by doing that. But the person behind the counter is allowed to give you the coffee. So it's a very strange system. Uh, it's already in place in Northern Ireland and in Sweden and in a number of places across the world. And the, the reason why they call it the end demand model is because the assumption is that it will reduce clients. It will mean that sex workers can call for help from police and actually it's the client that will get arrested. Right. That's yeah. the idea. But the realities are it's just a proxy for criminalization, yeah. which is making the sex worker illegal. And what happens is sex workers are less likely to work in transparent situations, more likely to work underground. So, so that they'll be able to attract their clients. Exactly. We have to make a client feel comfortable uh, in order to work. Uh, it's actually being, this model is being proposed in the UK. And I find it absolutely terrifying because when you combine the fact that people aren't listening to sex workers with the fact that um let's paint a scenario so i have epilepsy which has been managed since i was very young now but if i'm with a client and i have a seizure and the Norton model is in place is that client going to pick up the phone call 999 or are they going to walk away gosh i hadn't even thought about that and the same is true for if the sex worker maybe if they're overdosing or if they're look like they're underage and they need help. Not that the client's always a safe avenue of support, but the more transparency there is there, the better we can target other laws being broken, such as assault or human trafficking or these other things. It's yeah. it's a messy situation. It makes it very dangerous, very unprotected for, for the workers. What would you advocate? I would advocate uh, full decriminalisation, which is in place in New Zealand. And it sounds really counterintuitive because... It sounds like that is actually in support of sex work. And it doesn't mean that it is. You don't have to be supporting this system of people being able to access sex and sexual services for money in order for you to be focused on the safety of sex workers. And that's really what decriminalizing is about, is making sure that sex workers can call the police no matter how they're working, no matter if they're in a brothel, no matter if they're advertising on the street, no matter how they're doing, they can work with police in emergencies. And you've seen fantastic results in New Zealand where it's been put in place, where assaults towards sex workers have reduced. I mean, our queen even gave some sort of honour to the sex worker that got it uh, in place in, in New Zealand. And now we're still considering introducing an opposing model, which is this asymmetrical punishment. We also have to remember that there are some groups that are potentially religiously motivated or have an ideology of sex work is the fuel behind sexism in order to, to clash with ideas like decriminalization. It's very unhelpful to bring that type of ideology into this space because individuals are living a reality rather than a sort of social experiment. And if women are only treated equally if they're 
earning in certain ways. We have to remember that sex workers are all genders. Uh, but if they're only accepted in certain ways, then what type of equality are we talking about there? Like, what type of barrier is pushed there, or is it just another level of hierarchy? Because it's impossible to end this type of work. It just pushes it further underground, where it's more harmful. I was interested in what you might think as a professional about the future of porn. How do you see it evolving, changing, or is it? So we mentioned that actually there's quite a lot of free porn out there. And so the rates, the actual like wages that porn actors are getting is kind of less now. There's not as much money in there. You don't have the same sort of porn barons that used to run the industry. You've actually got sort of hobbyists and people that used to be actors and actresses and performers, all types, who are now running their own studios. They're sort of taking over the studio role as well. And from that, the model shifted again because things like Twitter gave voices to sex workers and performers and the fans responded by wanting to know what their personal life is so now we have spaces they're sort of social media but porn focused platforms and you can pay for subscriptions for them but that's how a lot of people are actually making their money now because they're performer and filmer in the same role i can see that type of dialogue moving into workers rights easier and i can see these individuals working together more professionally because there's less of a I'm a performer I can use a glamorous diva persona instead people are trying to make friends with each other so they can film together and so it's kind of introducing a different professionalism to the performers as well as them knowing about different skills it's that authenticity that you were talking about before as well isn't it Mm. it's it's also because you imagine if you're a porn performer as you said there is a persona that you're trying to create but it sounds like the public has a great appetite to know that persona absolutely it kind of relates to similar how do you have the youtube culture of getting to know sort of different celebs it's that's kind of the space which it's occupying now uh and i i'm really hopeful that that will translate into companies and organizations realizing that they can't stigmatize people who've worked in the industry because it paints a fuller picture of who these people are and we're growing up in a time where there's an entire generation of people that have done things like nudes going to each other and things so these dialogues will evolve and we realize that you can't discriminate against people for forms of their sex work You can learn more about pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV and check out the safe and not-so-safe-for-work videos at pornforprep.com. To learn more about the legal frameworks for sex work that are in place across the world, including Foster Sester in the US and the Nordic and New Zealand models, follow the links in the show notes. The details for the Domino Foundation are there too. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and, of course, pleasure. Pleasure. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.